Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Hey, John. And by John, I mean John Marinero of the University of New Mexico, the person that introduced us to the first U.S. pre-hospital eCPR case, as well as running a fantastic eCPR program out there in Albuquerque. So I'm reading this book. It's called How Minds Change. And in the book, they talk about these truthers, people that denied the happenings of 9-11, that the Twin Towers really didn't fall or that there was some government conspiracy. And one of the people they talk about in this book is a guy named Charlie Veach, who ends up changing his mind. So after having the evidence put in front of him, after having all this investment of his life into telling people that this didn't happen, he changes his mind. And so today, we're going to talk about the inception trial, a trial, a negatively touted trial for eCPR. And I want to be open like Charlie. I want to be able to look at the data and say, hey, am I too close to this? Is this really something that we need to, to analyze as far as whether eCPR works? But maybe, maybe we're going to conclude something totally different. Maybe that we can conclude that this trial actually has some differences that allow us to say and look at how eCPR truly can be used in an efficacious way. John, welcome to EDECMO. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Zach. I really appreciate you for having me on today. Um, you, know, you know, I guess the inception trial, there's a, you know, I'm going to do the compliment sandwich, right? I'm, I'm upper middle management. I got an idea of what, uh, what I should be doing in these uh, kind of uh, things. So, you know, my compliment sandwich is I really, I, I think I want to applaud the New England Journal of Medicine for publishing a negative study, right? You know, for, and for acknowledging uh, this subject, uh, which is of great importance to the medical community. Um, you know, it's, it's unusual to have an eCPR trial published in a journal like New England Journal of Medicine. Frequently, it's in, you know, a lot of other journals and we appreciate all their support. But with New England Journal of Medicine, you're, you're getting a lot of eyes on a subject that's really near and dear to our heart. And so I, I think that is, a, it's an outstanding uh, growth in where we're at. And it's an outstanding um, uh, situation for ECMO and eCPR specifically. But there is a number of problems with this trial. And um, I think, you know, and, and again, I, you know, Suverain, and I think I'm, I'm probably killing that, that Dutch name, but Suverain at uh, all um, uh, in their paper on, on the inception trial, you know, kind of randomized these groups of patients, uh, the 160 patients to the eCPR and the conventional CPR on an intention to treat model. And although that is a great way to get a trial in New England Journal loves intention to treat model trials. It probably may not be exactly the best way to do this, um, because if you think about some trials, they have to be considered in, in the face of whether they're efficacious or whether they're effective. Yeah. And again, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I am smart in certain aspects of my career and I'm not another. So I, I appreciate Phil Seidenberg, one of my, uh, my uh, ER doc buddies who's helped me out with kind of the definition here. But efficacy is like when you uh, of an intervention is the measure of an intervention under controlled situation to get the outcome you wish, right? That is efficacy. And I'm going to say the arrest trial is an efficacy trial where you have a situation where Dr. Yiannopoulos has a nailed down program and showed an outstanding result with that. This trial is much more of an effectiveness trial. So under real world conditions, does eCPR work? Real world conditions where they didn't control for pre-hospital care. 
they had a number of places who were all trying to do it, although the vast majority was done by two centers, it was still kind of a spread out. It would be as though we said, hey, and and not even in Albuquerque, because we're a small market, but like some a bigger market, San Diego, 15 hospitals are all going to try to do eCPR. It doesn't work. And so, and I'm not saying it doesn't work, but I'm saying in this trial, it doesn't demonstrate that eCPR is ineffective. What it does show is that maybe you need to have centers of excellence. You need to have centers of excellence just like trauma care or centers of excellence just like stroke care. And maybe we should be working towards centers of excellence for eCPR, at least at this level. If you look at the arrest trial, he had great outcomes. If you look at our our data from, we just published a paper uh, um, last year in our first five years, and we had a 32% survival of eCPR. And that included some of our early years where we were still kind of learning the process. Last year, we had a 48% survival for our eCPRs over 21 patients. 48%, John, that is unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. So you're getting at one of the the main things here is that Yiannopoulos, Yiannopoulos able to show without a question, that the people who got the ECPR were far more, had far better, bigger benefit. University of New Mexico, unbelievable outcomes you guys are having out there. Let's take a step back real quick. So the inception trial, it is from the Netherlands. It's a big deal. It's all over the press right now. New England Journal. What did they do? We've had the, the same people in the, on the paper on EDECMO before, right? They are also implementing at the same time this pre-hospital ECPR program where they have the entire country covered. They have a hundred percent of people that have a certain window of cardiac arrest that can get pre-hospital ECPR. So this is not, this is a, a country that has been quite progressive in the in the realm of ECPR. Now I did do a little bit just to look at this so that kind of have an idea of, of the Netherlands. There's 17 million people. So we're talking about a country somewhere between Pennsylvania and New York. As John said, uh, 10 different hospitals that they recruited to try and do this. Uh, 12 of the 25 ambulance agencies throughout the country were involved. And they showed that 20% of the people that got eCPR were uh, actually, that I should say, got randomized into the P- uh, eCPR arm, had neurologically intact survivorship. And 16% of the people that were in the traditional arm. Now, this was not statistically significant. And so the conclusion is, ECPR is no better than traditional cardiac arrest resuscitation. And so John and I obviously have our biases. And John, I think you already spoke to a couple of these different things, but keep going. What what are your thoughts right here about how this trial was conducted? Yeah, again, I think it was conducted in a real world situation and maybe ECPR is not quite ready for that. It needs to be, how can centers that, that grind out a widget really well grind that widget out time and time again. And um, and again, I think we do it. I think the Alfred does it. I think San Diego does it. I think Annapolis does it. Leona Lama does it. And I think there's obviously lots of places across the U.S. and the world that do that. Um, but, you know, if you look at their interquartile, or sorry, if you look at their median time to getting on pump, okay, to being with actual flow was 74 minutes, right? With a, a, an interquartile range of 63 to 87 minutes. And Yiannopoulos in his paper, and I think everyone else in many other papers have shown that the faster you get someone on, the better getting on in less than 60 minutes of 55 minutes of low flow, five minutes of no flow 
is going to give you better outcomes, yet their median was 74. Taking so, uh, Totally. So we're looking at this. If we kind of do the deep dive into the data, um, the people that got into the eCPR arm, right? So you got randomized. Uh, John just talked about intention to treat, right? You either got put into the the traditional arm or the intention to treat arm. Most of these patients got put in before they ever got to the hospital. And so now you're in one of the two arms. It turns out that actually almost two thirds of the patients that survived in the eCPR arm never got eCPR. They just had ROS before they got the invention, their intervention started. So if you really look at their eCPR outcomes, and I think this is what John is speaking to, do you have a center of excellence with outcomes, their survival was terrible. They had um, five patients that survived, about 9% of the people that actually got ECMO survived. And this is in comparison to people like your institution where you had 48% survival. So if you aren't going to get any benefit from the actual outcome of the intervention, then it's going to be hard to prove that your uh, intervention is efficacious. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look at it, you know, 14% had ECMO cannulation uh, or ECLS failure, right? That's a really high number. Um, you know, 43% having neurologically unfavorable outcome is actually low. Typically, neurologically outcome in, in is 75% with, you know, just regular CPR. You die of your brain 75% of the time. But if you think about it for every minute, and there's that great paint paper, Time is Brain um, by uh, Saver that was like, for every minute you have a stroke and your brain's not getting perfused, you lose 1.9 million neurons, 14 billion synapses, and eight or like eight miles of, of myelinated fibers. So add that every time you're like ticking away one minute, another minute, another minute to 74 median minutes. That is billions of brain. If I had a napkin here, I'd, I'd bang out some math for you and say, we've lost <laughs> a lot of neurons. And these people are dying because of the fact that it took so long to get them on ECMO. And because they had a lot of cannulation failures, which is pretty rare. I don't know of that many cannulation failures that we, I don't think we have that. And I doubt other Yeah, people. when I saw that data, I was like, oh, Jason and, and uh, Dimitri are going to be <laughs> upset when they saw that many failures. Jason's like, yeah, no, I... I've never had a failure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so early let's on. Yeah. let's dive into that seventy-four minutes, John, because I think this is the key. We talked about like why. So in the Oslo paper, which is a very similar to this, right? Did this big, you know, workup, tried to get this program started, and then didn't really show outcomes. So in that seventy-four minutes, it looked to me, and you have a lot of exposure to this, and with Darren, um, you guys are just doing this phenomenally. It looked like the EMS did pretty good. Eight yeah. minutes to get to the patient. It, I think they were in the ER by 34 minutes on, on every patient from arrest to in the hospital. And then there's this 40 minutes of like, what is going on? Why does it take them 40 minutes to get them on eCPR? I think if you break those things down, it looks, and this is a, a, an outside looker uh, looking in. I'm not sure if this is how it worked, but it looked like a lot of CT surgeons were doing the cannulation. It looked like there was this time from when the patient got to the ER to when they started cannulation that was something more than 20 minutes, I think 22 minutes. And so uh, what I see this as they're waiting for the doc to do the intervention. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in, in our at our shop, we essentially, you know, we get, we go to 100% of STEMIs and cardiac arrests in the emergency department. We, and we go to them throughout the hospital, but in this case, at a hospital cardiac arrest, we go, we are there, we are ready to go on pump and they roll through the door. And if it, 
you know, they're like, we've shocked and shocked them six times and we're 25 minutes into this. We'll cannulate on the paramedic gurney, right? We don't even like take the few minutes to unload them off. There are populations of patients that you're going to be able to get away with later. Like, you know, we have had great hypothermic success and people may be like, Albuquerque, how do you have so many hypothermias? Well, we're a mile high, right? Well, you know, Denver and Salt Lake get all the credit, but we're also a mile high. And, um, and you know, we actually have uh, 13 patients, 14 ECMO runs and one death on hypothermic arrest with one guy getting three hours of CPR and another person being on ECMO two years apart, the same guy for a different kind of arrest. That's why our numbers are like 13 people, 14 arrests and one death. And, uh, and, um, and so it's like, and then I, I put on a adolescent the other day who had an hour and 16 minutes, an hour of nine minutes of CPR. And I did another, I took me seven minutes to get her on. And she walked and, you know, she's walking, eating, talking, and it's, there's going to be populations that can do 74 minutes, hypothermic, maybe young people, and we'll identify them. But in the general, you know, middle-aged guy kind of cardiac arrest, you probably need to get that person on in 30 minutes and 45 minutes and 60 minutes as, as Yiannopoulos' data and other people's data have shown. The earlier, the better. It's a lot of neurons to lose. So, yeah. So 9% survival at 74 minutes is not that, you know, that's not unreasonable. Um, it's, it's not great, but the, the real killer in this paper, I think is just that time to intervention, the time to get them started on the pump. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think we would be kind of remiss in, in thinking that, um, that this study tells us anything with the exception of, yeah, it's not ready to be widespread out there that you're going to create this thing. I th and I think that's okay. It's a good bit of information to have. And it's a good bit of information that may say, as I said earlier, that you need to kind of have a center of excellence or you need to have um, in, in, you know, depending on what size market, like a couple places people go, places people can go to for their cardiac arrest care, not, hey, we're just going to spread this out widely and not have standardized it. You know, you know, in Albuquerque, as you mentioned, Darren Brody has created a great pre-hospital system. And, uh, and we're, you know, it, it's been pretty phenomenal how, how well we've done with our cardiac arrest. Okay. So this study is touted as a negative eCPR study. Now, I would say this is a gold mine for all of you out there that are trying to start programs. This is what you should look at when you're starting to say, well, how do I do it? The Oslo study as well is to say exactly what John is just saying, that 10 centers. So if you looked at this data, it was something like uh, per center per year. So if you look at the trial and you say it's four year trial, almost a four year trial, but almost a year of that is cut out because of COVID. So a three year trial, um, you get about one, a little more than one case per center per year. There's just, just no way. There's no way you're going to be a good eCPR center if you have one case per year. So for all of you that are looking at, at how to structure your city, your program, this is not the way. John, what would you say? What would you say is the is the optimal number of cases per year per center if you're looking at a, a given city? Well, you know, I, I think you can kind of couch it in two ways. In our situation here in Albuquerque, our critical care group does 100% of the ECMO cannulations, right? Our cardiac surgeons call us into the OR 
for their ECMO cannulations if they're going to get off uh, and they want to go to peripheral and we cannulate in the OR. We do all the venovenous cannulations. We do all the massive PE. We go to the cardiac cath lab. So we have a lot of bites at the apple for doing ECMO cannulations. Just this year, I've put on four people already, right? And not, you know, only two ECPRs, but they, you know, that I've also done like some BV work on and stuff like that. And so I have a lot of experience and our whole group has a lot of experience of putting people on. But if you're only doing you know, eCPRs, you, you can't have, in my opinion, and I think, and I think you and I kind of differ maybe a little on this is that you can't have 40 ER docs who may put in one femoral line under CPR conditions, uh, you know, every two months or something like that, be expected to, you know, crank out like successful non-cannulation failure, non-complication ECMO, um, and so, you know, we have it down to a group of eight of us. And uh, in that eight, we, you know, we, we do a lot of ECMO here, a hundred percent of it. And so I think that you, to say how many numbers you have depends on what the encompassment of your program is. But if you're just doing ER uh, docs doing it, you probably need to have like a core of five people who are going to run in and do it and put on, you know, uh, 20 people, 10 people a year, just so that everybody has one or two cannulations to be successful. That being said, the the only way you're going to move the needle on survival on cardiac arrest is not one hospital per San Diego or one hospital per, you know, Albuquerque trying to implement things that save lives. You got to be like Paul Pepe did with the defibrillator and put it in every airport. We're going to have to figure a way to simplify ECMO for the masses. So this is a great question. And, and I hold this belief very loosely. I would say uh, the idea that uh, we at our shop, we have all of our ER docs trained. I, I think this study kind of in what you just said kind of is the is the crux of this, right? So if you have only CT surgeons available to do it and you have to wait 20 minutes to get the cannulation started, that's not that's not going to work. So that that idea is 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 out the window. Now the idea that John, where he has a relatively small number of people, highly trained, who have lots of exposure, even outside of eCPR, that is ideal. In my mind, that's ideal. Now, my shop, I don't think I could, I don't think we could implement that model, although, you know, it's it's still feasible. So I think out there in the world, there are still different ways to do this. I think the way that, John, you're doing it, I mean, I think the way that Yiannopoulos is doing it is phenomenal, right? If you can have two C, or two cardiologist who will give their whole life to this. What, yeah. what a great uh, way to do it. Um, but all of us who are in more of a reality where that, that is <laughs> unlikely to happen, then we have to come up with some sort of modification. And, and John, I think what you've done is amazing. Yeah. You know, and I, the thing, and I, um, I, I think this is a really important fact is, you know, in what 63 Peter Saffer came up with CPR outside of defibrillation, we have not moved the needle on saving people's lives, right? And if CPR is 18% of a normal cardiac output, I think that's what it is. All we have to do is somehow get to 30% of normal cardiac output and you're gonna save more lives. And ECMO is 100% of cardiac output. So between that 18% and 100% of cardiac output, there's gotta be something we can do. And I think the people on this uh, on this podcast and et cetera are the people who are going to figure this out. Like maybe we don't need to train every ER doc to put in a 15 or 17 French cannula and a 25 French cannula, but what can we do to save 
to, to increase our cardiac output with CPR, you know, again, by Paul Pepe, again, sitting heads up CPR, maybe that'll make a difference or something like that. Um, you know, I give a talk, uh, the cure for the common code. And, um, and it's basically like a review of the, the, the history of resuscitation from 3000 BC to present. And, you know, one of my favorite parts is there's this English Royal Humane Society, which is this initial title back in 1774, was the Institute for Affording Immediate Relief of Persons Apparently Dead from Drowning. And it's like, you know, it's a great thing. It's a great name for a society. And, you know, we, we need to get something like that. And their motto is a little angel blowing an ember and saying that, you know, essentially that there's a little spark may yet lay hid. And if we can get this spark and blow on it and make it, you know, come alive again, we're going to save more lives. 250 years ago to now, the, the, you're not blowing on the little spark. You're, you're, you're blowing on an ECMO machine that's going to blow blood into the femoral artery and hopefully ignite that spark. And I, I would just say is that, the, you know, the onus is on the people on this call to figure out how to bridge that 18% CPR to full ECMO flow. What are we going to do in between there to get us more survivors? Okay. So inception trial, it, all of you, you should read this and you should actually get the supplemental uh, material for this. If you're going to look at this, you're going to dive in, get the supplemental data. It is it is a gold mine for those of you that are trying to to figure out programs. Uh, the inception trial had roughly the same amount of patients survive in the ECPR arm as the traditional arm. A lot of reasons for that. Now, John, before we hang up, I've got to hear more about your data. Like, you just said you saved a 16-year-old. You said you had 48% survival. How are you guys doing that? Uh, again, we respond to 100% uh, the ECMO cannulation team. Uh, you know, and I'm going to say this is a little bit. Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., we respond to 100% of cardiac arrest in the emergency department. About 60% of all night shifts are covered by cannulators, too, because there's a group of eight of us, and we're all full-time critical care. So then that leaves about 40% of the nights where we're not. But if you we come in from home and because of the, the great EMS system we have here, we get alerted really early. So like the, the one I put on, there was a hypothermic arrest I put on last week. I got a 10 minute heads up. By the time I got to the ER, they were already there. And I was, you know, I, I just walked right in and we have a pack. We open up the UNM ECMO pack and we just go top to bottom and cannulate uh, the person, and it, it just doesn't take very long. And the ECMO specialists are there because, um, you know, again, you almost always have somebody on ECMO. So they just run downstairs, hand you the tubes, you, you're up and you're running, and then that person goes home. And, and again, it's, it's an ideal situation, but it's not an impossible situation to create. The uh, seven layer burrito, is that right? A bean dip. Bean dip. Bean dip. Oh, yeah. Seven layer bean dip. True to Albuquerque form, this is their. This is their pack that they have. It's prepackaged. I, we have a, adopted that at, at Sharp because of how awesome that was and just such a great idea. And this is what I think is amazing about this community is that we learn from each other. We figure out how to do it better. So, yeah. John, 48%, you have eight cannulators. You've included uh, your hypothermia cases. Tell me about PEA. Um, you know, uh, so the hypothermics are all you know, asystole or PEA, I mean, they're, they're, they're very rarely fine V-fibs, right? You know, that, that does happen, but they're often very low. Um, on our massive pulmonary embolisms, um, you know, which is, again, tends to be a PEA group, um, we have had incredible success doing um, what uh, I want his name is Zach Khan out of, uh, initially was out of Baltimore, and then he's up in, uh, uh, then he went to New York, and I think he may be up in Boston now, um, did a ECPR or sorry, CPR, sorry, ECMO first for massive PEs. 
And, you know, in 2016, we had a 80% mortality uh, for massive PEs doing the chest guidelines pushing TPA. Um, and in uh, from 2017 to 2019, which was the, the, the data we published, we actually had, uh, if you hadn't cardiac arrested uh, completely, 100% survival. And if you had cardiac arrested, we had a 60% survival over 19 patients. So like we essentially had two deaths um, uh, as opposed to the year before where we had exactly the opposite amount of, uh, uh, of, uh, survivorship. And so it was, we've totally increased a hundred percent of our massive PEs just go on ECMO and then we go from there. So if they're in arrest and we wake them up, we had a lady just before Christmas that had a massive PE, a mom of four, uh, I think it was December 24th, actually, she had 45 minutes of CPR and she's, you know, up, she's home, had, you know, had New Year's Day with her family and one of our docs went and visited. So PEA is an okay, is okay if the cause is not something um, and they haven't been down for very long. And how do you direct your eight cannulators to decide whether they're in a PE, PEA arrest? Uh, usually it's a story. And we also do transesophageal echo and echo here, like the intensivists, um, uh, we have our own TEE probe. So we do our own TEE probe uh, echoes. And so like somebody's dropping a, a TEE probe down, uh, we do a, a very aggressive echo program here with uh, ER docs, all learning resuscitative transesophageal echo. The ER has their own TEE probes. So they drop probes down and they're like, oh man, the right heart's really big. And we're like, okay, just go, boom, you're gone, you're on. Um, you know, but then there are people if the low flow is greater than five minutes or the no or the no flow is greater than five minutes and the low flow, we're not going to get them on in 60 minutes for whatever reason. Outside of special cases, maybe peds is going to end up being one since I just had that really good survival. Um, you know, I think that um, I think that that is that jury is still out. So great. Anything yeah. else, John? Do you, any other pearls of wisdom for us? Uh, I have a couple of a couple of cool things we're doing. We've restarted finally from the pandemic, our pre-hospital ECMO program. Two and a half weeks ago, we restarted the program. We've actually had one case we went out on. The guy got on in 56 minutes, hand cranked at 4.9 liters a minute, you know, mean arterial pressure using the compass pressure device uh, that we use for in the field art line monitoring worked perfectly. And uh, unfortunately, again, with uh, the, the guys, you know, we the only people we do pre-hospital ECMO on are people that are outside a certain ring of distance. And so that's why, like, we, by the time we get to these people, it's about 40 minutes. Um, and then that includes, like, you know, how reliable is the story? But, you know, we cannulated this gentleman uh, at a truck stop. And uh, unfortunately, the outcome wasn't like we wanted. But it's, again, still proof of concept. It was our first one in three years due to the pandemic. Um, and then the other thing, cool thing we've got going on now is, we put on our first critical care fluoroscopy course. So we now have a floating C-arm bed uh, or floating fluoro bed in the ICU um, that looks just like the kind they have in the cath lab. And, um, and we have access to a C-arm and we basically, I put on the critical care fluoroscopy course where just like the way an ultrasound works where we just take it, plug it in, put in the patient's information and do it. We don't have a tech who helps us. We just, we learned how to use the machine. So we are using the C-arm like the way ortho probably does it for orthopedic procedures, but we're, this is a full body C arm type thing that we can do. And we don't have to ask for anybody to come help us and the bed moves. And so we're, so I did, uh, we've done three uh, ECMO procedures um, in the first uh, 10 days we had it uh, under the C arm, you know, cause we do, it was a tracheal stenosis and a, a elective uh, VV so that the ENT doctors could get the person innovated safely. And then another one was a, um, 
a, uh, a venovenous uh, ECMO for something else, and then a reperfusion cannula. So, um, but you know, it's, it's a fun process and we really enjoy kind of breaking down barriers. And so it's been great. Well, John, you talk about effectiveness versus efficacy. And I think what you guys do out there is just unbelievable. You take real world situation. You take places where you have to hand crank the, the patient to get back to the hospital. You take real problems that exist in the world, which, which all of us encounter, and you just solve them. And you guys have just an unbelievable program. So we are so thankful for all that you do out there. Thanks for joining the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's great to see you again uh, after the pandemic. I like how everything we couch is, well, that was during the pandemic and it's all gone now. So it makes, it's, it's a much better life now. All right. There you have it. Uh, big trial, uh, Netherlands, inception trial, trying to figure out whether eCPR is more effective. The outcomes were about the same. A lot of reasons for why that might be. You see programs all around the world that are doing this really well. And John Marinell is at the top of that list. They are just so phenomenal out there in New Mexico, and their outcomes show it. And so for all of you out there that are listening, uh, I would say, look at this paper. It's very good. It allows you to see a lot of things. And then also look at what John's doing, because the way that they solve problems is fantastic. With that, signing out.